Hello and welcome to Movie Culture. Today we are talking about Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo was released in 2003 and is Pixar's fifth feature film. The movie was directed by Andrew Stanton and co-directed by Lee Uncrick. If it's been a minute since you've seen this movie, here's a quick synopsis. And if you have seen it recently, we will put timestamps in the show notes so you can skip on to the discussion. The movie follows an overprotective clownfish, Marlin, and his lone son, Nemo. On Nemo's first day of school, Marlin embarrasses him, leading Nemo to swim away from the reef where he's captured by scuba divers. Marlin tries to chase the boat, but loses his way, although he finds Dory, a blue tang who suffers from short-term memory loss. The two set out across the ocean to find Nemo. Along the way, they escape sharks, a deep-sea anglerfish, and a forest of stinging jellyfish before being helped by a school of laid-back sea turtles. Marlin tells the story of their journey, which is relayed all the way across the ocean until Nemo, in a dentist's fish tank, hears that his father is coming to save him. Nemo works with the other fish in that tank to escape, proving his own courage and capabilities in the process. Their plan fails, however, and Nemo resigns himself to being given to the dentist's fish-killing niece. At the last moment, Marlin arrives to save him, carried the rest of the way by a whale and a pelican. Nemo escapes down a drain, and the pelican returns Marlin and Dory to the ocean, where they reunite with Nemo and return to the reef. Finding Nemo. Yeah. What'd you think? Oh, I love this movie. I am so in. Yeah. How about you? I also loved it. I think it's my favorite so far. Yeah. What'd you like about it? It it really uh, affected me emotionally. I felt like I was on the verge of tears for most of the movie, which really surprised me because Mm -hmm. I don't remember it feeling that way. Not how I remember it. We should say this movie came out in 2004 when we were 11 years old. So this movie, I think, and Monsters, Inc., more than any other, we were right in the prime spot for upon release. I felt like this movie was everywhere when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't walk into a doctor's office without it just being just playing on repeat. Certainly not a dentist's office. (laughs) Yes. Big favorite with dentists. And I feel like even pretty recently, anytime you'd go into a Best Buy, this is the movie playing on all the screens. You know, I actually wonder if the Best Buy thing is specific to Finding Nemo. And this is one of the things that I was thinking about. And maybe the thing I liked most about this movie is how good the animation is. The level of animation just totally jumped from the first few Pixar movies to this. And I know that we have this thing with Pixar where every movie they figure out how to animate something different and something better. And, you know, with Monsters, Inc., they figured out how to animate fur. And more recently, like, they didn't really know how to animate hair until Brave. And all of that's great and niche. But the way they animate the water in this is incredible. And it makes so much sense to me that Best Buy, in trying to, you know, sell their TVs and show what great quality they have, that they'd put really what is among the most beautiful movies I've ever seen playing on every single one of those high-definition screens. Josh, Josh, okay, 
So let me just reach into my Pixar fun fact bag. Oh, reach in. So when they were learning to animate the water, Mm -hmm. they actually learned too well. They put cameras underwater. They hired marine biologists. They Mm -hmm. went all in on this one. And they, they got so good at animating the water that they could no longer tell that it was animation. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. They they couldn't tell the difference between their animation of water and actual live footage of water. And it looked so weird because the fish still looked animated, but it looked like there was just animated fish swimming around in the real ocean. Oh, so it, it had a feeling of like Space Jam, Who's Afraid of Roger Rabbit, those movies that have cartoons and real life put together. Yeah. They, and that's always a little uncanny. So they had to dial it back a little bit and make the water look fake again, but they hit a great balance. Look, whatever they did worked. Just on this specifically, the way the movie looks, the way that the ocean looks, it is just absolutely impeccably done. It's so good. Not just the way the animation looks. Also, I think the entire world of the ocean is just so cool and, wait for it, immersive. Mm. (laughs) I'm happy with that. I think the ocean is such a cool setting. They've played around with a bunch of settings in the movies we've seen, and we know that they'll continue to do that. But, you know, the way that they incorporate different fish, the way that they have the reef as a neighborhood... And, you know, all through the like trenches of jellyfish and you get into the harbor and and the water is murkier in places and what fishes live where. And, you know, the schools of fish, the return stuff, and there's all this different world building stuff that's so cool and so fun. And I think the ocean gives this really interesting way to think about gravity and the the three dimensional world of the ocean that not only are they moving front and backward side to uh, side to side, but also there are areas that, you know, you can really drop down and that's really scary. And that just added a whole, literally another axis of creativity for Pixar to work in. That's so interesting. I didn't really think about that, but you're totally right. And then beyond that, the sound quality is again, just so ethereal and wonderful and totally immersive in a way that I don't think I I had recognized. While watching, we noted that there's no classic Randy Newman song in this movie, but the score still is totally on that level. And the score is actually nominated for an Oscar. The sound editing is so beautiful in this movie. I love that you always notice those things. I think it's just the it's the craft parts of the movie that bring everything together. You know, we we go to movies because they're transportational experiences. And I love movies that use every tool in their toolbox to tell that story. And because of that, Finding Nemo as a movie eclipses what it could be as whatever else, as a book, as an album, as a play, as any other sort of media, because of the animation and because of the sound effects and because of all the, you know, the cinematography they can do. Yeah. Not to mention the writing and the acting, the voice acting again. Oh my God. It's so good. And it's so good, not just for our main cast, but 
every single character in the this movie. The tertiary characters even are so good. I noticed that while watching too. I didn't even know that side characters could have that much personality in just one or two lines. But of course, these are the characters that you remember when looking back on the movie. You know, of course you remember Marlon and Dory and Nemo, but you're also really thinking of, for me specifically, uh, Gil, the leader of the tank, uh, voiced by Dennis Leary, Nigel, the pelican. Love Nigel. And especially, gotta have a shout out to Crush the Sea Turtle, who's voiced by... Andrew Stanton. Who directed this movie. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be the writer and the director, I mean, throw yourself that role. Yeah, give yourself the best part. Kelbunga, dude. (laughs) That was better than the Boo impression. I got to say, I wrote down a couple uh, crush lines and they will be recurring throughout this podcast. Oh, good. But those those side characters are so good and memorable. They are. And and they really set the tone of every different scene that the movie is in Mm because this movie moves through the ocean i suppose Mm. the whole ocean so there's a lot of episodic spaces of the ocean and each side character in the different space has their own personality that really sets the tone for that mini episode i was really wondering about this episodic nature and i actually want to ask you as our resident craft expert Ooh. <laughs> um, what you thought about the way that it made this single narrative into these little episodic chunks. So I was surprised when watching it how fast everything started happening. Oh, yeah. Nemo's gone in the first 15 minutes. By the 15-minute mm-hmm. mark... He's, he's touched the butt. He's touched the butt. He's been captured by the humans. Mm-hmm. And then immediately... We're into the shark scene. Yeah. And that lasts 10 minutes, and then we're on to the next. Because Marlon goes off to find him. He finds Dory. Dory leads him astray, and the sharks come immediately. Yeah, and I think each little episode takes maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you have a movie that's an hour and 40 minutes. Something like that. Then you're just going through. You're just zipping through, through the narrative. How do you think they had such a singular emotional narrative while still maintaining this episodic structure through the whole movie? I think there's two things, which is, first of all, that Marlin and Nemo's parallel narratives mirror Mm. each other's emotional beats throughout the movie. Can you give an example? Yes. So every scene has an emotional charge, I guess we can call it. So the character starts off emotionally in one place and ends Mm -hmm. in another and if they end better than they started it's a positive charge and if they end worse it's a negative charge Mm -hmm. there can be more degrees so you know the first set of scenes once nemo is in the tank and once marlin is out Mm -hmm. is not necessarily a very strong charge so the first scene for marlin is the sharks one Mm mm-hmm Marlon has just lost his son. So he's starting at a really low point. Mm -hmm. He goes to the sharks. The sharks are in their fish are friends meeting. Mm -hmm. And then they try to eat the fish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Marlon and Dory are running for their lives. They're almost going to die. But they manage to survive. Yeah. So the scene ends with them still alive. They 
escaped the sharks and they're on their way. So it's a slight positive charge. Yes, because they're still alive. They've also gathered information about how they can find Nemo based on the mask that they found. P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. There you go. (laughs) For Nemo, he has just been abducted and he ends up in the tank. It's really scary for him. He's lost his father. He's trapped in this tank. But he ends slightly better than he starts because he starts talking to the other fish in the tank and feels comforted by them. Mm -hmm. So these are slight positive charges. Mm -hmm. Then the one that follows for Marlin is the anglerfish. This is when they dive deep, like how you were talking about. Yeah, into the blackness. Yes. Uh, An anglerfish now almost eats them, but they run for their lives yet again. They escape from the literal jaws of death. And Mm -hmm. this time, Dory reads the mask. So they have a very clear sense of where they're going next. Mm -hmm. And they're much more excited this time. It's not like the shark scene where they're like, oh, okay, we escape the sharks and have blown up this whole place and we're Mm -hmm. just trying to catch our breath. So this is a strong positive charge scene. Yeah, they're celebrating. Is that followed by the fish tank at night when Nemo becomes fully embraced into the group? Yes. And that scene ends with Gil presenting Nemo with their escape heist plan. Oh, yeah. So it's this real feeling that He's going to get out of there. There is a clear path towards the way home. So that's why it feels like one narrative is because even though you've got these two perspectives, they're following the same emotional beats through the movie and building off of the emotional beats of the other one. Even though the characters can't see that, that affects how we as the audience are feeling through the course of the movie. Yeah. And this goes on. They have parallel emotional beats consistently basically until their narratives converge and they find mm-hmm. each other again. It's really well done. It really is. It's it's impressive. And I, I went back and I, I rewatched the endings of each scene uh-huh. to see how they were paralleling each other. But it's very cool. And it's, it's very, feels very intentional. Mm-hmm. I think that also something that keeps the momentum going and it makes you feel like you have this solid one narrative is that the theme is so strong and straightforward. What is that theme? To me, I think it was learning to let go Mm -hmm. of your kid for Marlon. Mm -hmm. And for Nemo, finding his own independence and his own autonomy. Mm -hmm. I would say that this movie maybe makes a pretty strong case for almost didactic thematic storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's typically something that I don't think works. How so? I think that when you have kids media specifically, when something feels didactic, when it feels like the storyteller has a very specific message that they're trying to convey, it can feel like you as the viewer or the reader are not a part of the narrative, you're not participating in finding meaning. You're just Mm -hmm. hearing them tell you what you're supposed to think. Uh, So it can have this kind of effect of distancing. Okay. And I am so curious about this movie because I think that it's very clear about what it's trying to say to the Mm -hmm. point where it says it multiple times. Oh, yeah. 
the first time that it's really explicitly stated, I think, is with Crush. Yeah, which line? Uh, so Marlon asks Crush, how do you know when they're ready about kids? Let's see how little Squirt does while flying solo. That one? Wow. Uh, that's not the one that I was referring to. What? <laughs> but I'm. it was very good. And I just want to acknowledge that I... Honestly, I thought my Crush impression <laughs> would be better. It was better in my head. I don't it know what happened. It always is. I know. That's, that's, yeah. that's how it goes. Oh, did you have... Sometimes you just know you know, you know, that well, one. <laughs> well, you never really know, but when they know, you know, you know. Classic crush. Ugh. Oh, it's awesome, Jelly Man. Little dudes are just eggs. We leave them on a beach to hatch, and then coo-coo-coo-choo, they find their way back to the big old blue. All by themselves? Yeah. But, 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 dude, how do you know when they're ready? Well, you never really know, but when they know, you'll know, you know. Oh. And then it happens again. Mm -hmm. It actually happens twice, I think, in the whale. So when Doria and Nemo are swallowed by the whale, they have a conversation about letting go, literally. And Marlin says to Dory, I promised him that I wouldn't let anything happen to him. And Dory says, well, you can't not let anything happen to him. Then nothing would ever happen to him. Mm -hmm. And then when the whale is telling them to go to the back of the throat so it can so he can shoot them up yes they're hanging on to the taste buds of the whale's tongue which it's i so find weird really really unpleasant to look at that's probably my chief criticism with the movie and i remembered that scene from when i was a kid because i remembered feeling so grossed out and i still was grossed you out. really cringed it's they're hanging on to the okay Anyway, so they're hanging on to the taste buds of the whale, and Dory tells Marlin, the whale says it's time to let go, and Marlin doesn't want to let go, and Dory says everything's going to be all right, and Marlin says, how do you know something bad's gonna, not going to happen, and Dory says, I don't, and then Marlin lets go. Literally. Literally. And I... <laughs> I've been trying to figure out why I think it works here and why I'm so critical of other movies when they do this. Because it's so on the nose, it's but it's so still effective. On the nose. But I was like trying not to cry. <laughs> it just worked for me. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. It is a really powerful theme and it's really well articulated and- that final scene in The Whale when Dory is literally yelling, let go, might be a hair too much. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it, you know, is really powerful. I think that part of what works in all these cases is that Marlin is the one asking questions. He's our main character. Mm. We're relating to him. And it's not like he's the one telling us what to think. He is asking the people in this journey how he's supposed to understand this question and people are offering their advice. And of course their advice is very clearly what the movie's trying to tell us. Yeah. But it still helps to have that, that because it's framed as a question. Because it's done with some distance from the main character that it's the movie trying to tell us and not the main character specifically talking to the audience that gives us enough distance that for maybe plausible deniability in a way. 
Yeah, and when Marlin receives some wisdom from the other characters, Mm -hmm. there is that effect of he's the audience surrogate, so it does feel like we are receiving wisdom from the characters too. Mm -hmm. And when you're so immersed, like you were saying, when you're so immersed in the story, it takes so much to pull you out of it. And I I think that if Mm -hmm. the whole world weren't so immersive, if it was easier to step back and remember that you're watching an animated movie about fish about fish then those moments might feel more jarring rather than what we have here which i think is they feel genuinely wise i guess (laughs) you know i think that's a really good point and that is a really powerful theme in this movie because the theme is articulated by the movie and not by any particular character It did make me feel a little odd that the same parenting style is being preached by such a diverse group of characters. You know, you mentioned the movie being didactic in its theme. I also think the movie is potentially didactic in its preferred version of parenting. Marlon is shown as, you know, an overmanaging, overworried parent and is being a bad parent because of that. And all the other characters are good parents because they let their kids have autonomy and freedom and distance and space and the agency to help themselves. And I I don't necessarily believe that one is absolutely better than the other or that one is not better than the other, but the movie certainly believes that there's a right way to parent and a wrong way to parent. And that that did give me some slight hesitation with that being such a prominent theme in the movie. Oh, yeah. It's very clear what the movie is saying mm-hmm. about how you should parent. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, a lot of this advice does come from Dory, who is not a parent. Yeah. And of course, she's not giving it with the through the lens of parenting. She's just giving it as general life advice. Sometimes you got to take risks. You got to follow your heart, trust your gut. You can't just always, you know, second guess everything. But it certainly has one very particular idea of what being a good parent means. And since the movie is, I would say, more about parenting than any other Pixar movie we've watched, and all of the Pixar movies we've watched are about parenting. I mean, not Bugs Life. That's just about socialism. Except for Bugs Life. But the rest, like, mm-hmm. the rest of Pixar movies are about parenting, and this one is literally about parents. Yes. It felt a little odd to have such an unnuanced take. I agree with you. I, I think that is a fair criticism. What did you think about the theme? You know, I think that the theme is so clearly about parenting, and I think that, again, they always, they're talking about letting go so much. I was looking at a different theme which is about the lengths that parents are willing to go to protect their children. Nemo is taken hostage and Marlin crosses the whole ocean and gets into all these adventures and, you know, will not be stopped. There are action movies where, you know, a Keanu Reeves or whoever is wronged and exacts revenge on the people who have wronged him. And those characters don't do as much or go through as much or face the trials that Marlon does 
trying to get Nemo back. My god, this is the taken of fish. Yeah, this is fish taken. I think this is best articulated in what is my favorite scene in the movie, which is the montage about exactly halfway where they recap Marlin's journey. They do that where he is telling the the baby sea turtles what he's been through. And then they tell a fish and the fish tell another fish and that fish tells a lobster. And then a dolphin tells a seagull and the story passes around the entire ocean and the legend of Marlin grows. And as two pelicans are flying off on the last leg of this montage, one of them says to the other, he'll stop at nothing to find his son. That's one dedicated father, if you ask me. Yeah. To me, that line is just the fully encapsulated theme of the movie. You know, if you mess with the kids, there is nothing a parent won't do. I really love that scene. I got goosebumps in that scene. It's so epic. It's so cool. I also love the way that it contrasts Marlin trying to tell the joke a couple times in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, you're a clownfish. Can you tell us a joke? And Marlin tries to tell this story, this joke. And you just watch people's faces fall as they realize that mm-hmm. this story is terrible and they mm-hmm. don't want to listen. And... I just thought it was really fun to see him be able to tell this story and the turtles are fascinated and they say, oh, this is a good story. And then everyone wants to hear this story. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were trying to say this, but I liked this idea of the difference between a story that other people want you to tell or expect you to tell based on what they assume about you mm-hmm. versus the story that is true to your heart and how that is the one that really spreads. That is a really great point. And I think that the movie at times is trying to talk about stereotypes in a little bit of a ham-handed convoluted way. Part of that being fish coming up to Marlin and saying, oh, you're a clownfish, you must be funny. And of course, Marlin is not funny. But also, I noticed in the shark scene, in the shark scene, the reason that Bruce and the other sharks are going, you know, vegetarian is to redeem the image of sharks. And they know that there are stereotypes against sharks that they are trying to work against. I don't think this was a deep theme, but it was an idea that because it surfaced twice in the movie about those expectations versus reality of different characters or of different species, I thought it was worth pointing out. Yeah. I think that the shark thing is a bit interesting. I don't really know how to comment on it. It's clearly doing a parody of addiction Mm -hmm. and sobriety. And I don't really know what to say about that. It it kind of raised some flags for me, but that's not something that I'm well-versed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, now that we've sort of moved into analysis and critiques, I'm wondering if you had any other things that you felt were worthy of bringing up. I guess speaking of raising flags, I am curious about Dory's character. You know, she has um, short-term memory loss. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot that the movie is doing about mental health and how it portrays that. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not something that I'm an expert in. Uh, It raised some flags. Also, I was reading a little bit about 
the intention behind her character. Mm -hmm. Andrew Stanton had said that he wanted Dory to feel like a child's character Mm -hmm. because Dory in a lot of ways is a stand-in for Nemo. Mm -hmm. And the short-term memory loss was a way to portray her as childlike. And incapable. Yeah, and innocent in a Mm -hmm. way. There's also these parallels that they were playing on with the fact that Dory is an angelfish, so she is like an angel for Marlin. That's that's cute. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So I I think Dory's such a fun character. I love Dory. I feel like everyone loves Dory. Uh, I think that it's it's interesting and maybe not great having this stereotype, like you're saying, of mental illness as being childlike. And innocent and an angel figure for our main character rather than Mm -hmm. a fully fleshed out character of her own. Yeah, I think that is a really good point. I don't know. I'm I'm very curious to watch Finding Dory Mm -hmm. and to see how they handle it there. Because I I do feel like they were responding to this critique specifically in a lot of ways. So I think we'll talk more about it when we get there. Yeah, I think that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I do want to talk a little bit more about Dory while we're here, though. I know everyone likes Dory. Oh, is this going to be a hot take about Dory? I'm on the record of thinking Ellen DeGeneres as Dory is the best Pixar voiced character. I think Dory brings a lot of humor to the movie. And I remember loving Dory as a kid. I don't really know based on our discussions about themes and how this movie makes you feel the way it does and how it does that very successfully. I don't know how Dory impacts those themes. I don't really know what she's doing in the movie as anything except comic relief. Well, a lot of the ideas about how Marlon should be parenting come from Dory. I think- what we talked about about that Nemo stand-in, that child stand-in for Merlin, he learns to trust Dory like he should be learning to trust Nemo. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel a little bit weird about that because Dory is an adult female character instead of his child. Yeah. And it's a bit strange that he is having this father-child arc with But I think that that is a lot of the intention with her character in the movie, in addition to comic relief. Which is valuable. Yes, yes. And and she drives the plot in certain areas, and she can read, which turns out to be very important. Yeah, but specifically I'm thinking about the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. Dory says, I have a feeling that we're supposed to go through the trench because she remembered kind of hearing it, but she couldn't remember Mm -hmm. that she was told. She just knew She just knew that they weren't supposed to go through it. Mm -hmm. But she tells Marlon, trust me. And he says no. And then she gets injured because he didn't trust her. And of course, later in the whale, she says, trust me. And he does. Yes. So it's mirroring that he didn't trust Nemo's ability to swim. And that is what caused Nemo to go off in an attempt to prove his abilities to Marlon. You know what I think my issue with Dory is? In a movie with such terrific tertiary characters who have their whole lives and experiences 
and are thoughtfully portrayed both with comedy and also uh, empathy, I think it is rubbing me the wrong way that Dory, who again is a really popular, wonderful, wonderful character, only exists in this movie as a foil to someone else. Yes, yes, you're so right. I wrote in my notes right when we're introduced to Dory, what is Dory's character arc? Mm -hmm. Because I didn't remember and I thought that was worth paying attention to. And I don't think that she has one. Yeah, I don't either. Which in itself is not is not a problem in most movies because in most movies, the character arcs belong to Marlon and Nemo and that's it. But when you also have a bunch of other characters who play such important roles, it feels weird that Dory is not one of them. Yeah, she's really our only secondary character. I mean, I I, I think she gets possibly more screen time than Nemo. And so it, it does feel certainly noticeable. I agree. Yeah. Well, I guess they did make a whole movie for her. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my hot Dory take, but I guess we're going to have way more Dory takes, you know, 10 more movies down the line. Exciting. Before we wrap up, do you have anything else you want to say? I just really liked this movie. I thought it was really powerful and I loved the the arc about parenthood, which we've talked so much about. I also really liked Nemo's coming of age arc. Mm-hmm. It's secondary to Marlin's, mm-hmm. which I think it has to be. But I thought it was really powerful that he is learning his own strength and his own power. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there was just this one moment that really exemplified this coming of age arc, both for Nemo, but also for Marlin and what it means for a child to come of age. And it comes after the scene that you were talking about where Marlin is telling his story and the news of his journey spreads throughout the whole mm-hmm. ocean. And that story reaches Nemo. Mm-hmm. And Nemo Through Nigel. Yes, Nigel, the Australian pelican that we love. And Nemo hears Marlin's story and he hears what his dad has done to find him. And Nemo has this moment where he so clearly feels so proud mm-hmm. of his dad. Mm-hmm. And it's just this beautiful reversal of we always think of kids trying to make their parents proud. But seeing how this kid is so proud of his father, yeah, it felt very real. I think maybe underneath all of the very explicit things that this movie has to say about how to be a good parent, maybe that was the strongest part, which is that it's in how you live. It's creating this example that your kid can look to. And be inspired by because right after Nemo hears about how brave Marlin was, Mm -hmm. he has the courage to go change his own situation. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great, that's such a great point. And so well said. I wonder if that is why the movie works on this emotional level, because there are these themes that work so well, but also you have a subplot of Marlin saying at the very, very beginning of the movie what if my kids hate me? Yeah. Right? When there are still a thousand eggs before the barracuda, that is his fear. And then the last thing Nemo says to him before Nemo gets abducted 
is, I hate you, dad. And, and that leads to the end of the movie where the last thing Nemo says to Marlin is, I love you, dad. That is such a singular, powerful, emotional narrative that that might just help everything else through. Yeah, and not to say that the the more explicit messaging is necessarily bad, but just the depth that you get from these other moments. Mm-hmm. I think, like you're saying, it keeps it from feeling like everything is just on the surface, on the nose. Yeah. Man, it's a beautiful movie, and it's a beautiful relationship between these characters. And, you know, I know we had some small nitpicks and critiques, but the themes are just so strong. And God, I just, I really liked this one. Me too. I also, this was the one that I really felt the difference between watching it as an adult versus as a kid. You, you were trying to put this off for a few days. I mean, I think that when I watched it as a kid, I really related to Nemo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And more than any other Pixar movie, this is so clearly showing how they have their cake and eat it too. They have literally two storylines. Yeah. And one is parenthood and one is childhood. Yeah. And so... As a kid relating to Nemo, I was like, Nemo's great. Marlon's a good dad, but like, you know, Marlon's not chill. <laughs> Marlon's kind of whatever. It's cool that Marlon has adventures, but like, that doesn't make him a better dad. Yeah. And he's like just this old fish that you're watching. <laughs> now, I. Hashtag like, no old fish. <laughs> I was really relating to Marlon from the very beginning. I was like, Marlon's great. Nemo, let Marlin sleep in and appreciate your father. So, yeah, I am now also an old fish, I guess. I mean, I was relating to Bruce. Let's have some recognition for the sharks. Oh, right. Josh loves sharks. I mean, sharks are amazing. Yes. Well, great movie. Uh, loved it. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, join us next time where we talk about the first superhero movie very excited for the incredibles thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe so fun we will see you next tuesday for the incredibles